Welcome to Lineouts by Earful of Dirt, bringing you conversations with rugby newsmakers about the greatest sport on the planet. And we're live. Uh, my name is Aaron Castro. You can find me at the Strobro. Um, and I'm with Alex Magleby. Uh, you can find him on his new podcast, full, at Full Contact CEO. Um, how are you doing today, Alex? Aaron, I'm great. I'm so excited we're live. That's amazing. We don't get to do yeah. that very often. So that's really yeah, cool. I, I try to, you know, just just to sort of push these things in a, in a certain direction. It's really, um, you know, it's really different uh, when you think about it, just doing, having conversations that are live. Um, you know, we've, I would say, in a sense, we've worked together in the past or we've even traded barbs in the past because I've been the person always asking questions, but not in this environment. Um, but this is, um, like I said, it's it's going to be um, the lineouts platform that you're full of dirt runs is uh, really uh, your chance to tell your rugby story. And, you know, you have as American of a rugby story as possible, which really, you know, makes this um, – unique because you played you know way back in high school or maybe sooner i just may not know that um but so that's that's why we're here today is to you know dig into i guess the full contact ceo so mags when did you begin um playing sports we want to talk about rugby yeah so can i have my coffee as we talk is oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I should have. I should have had one. Actually, I would invite you to have one, but I. We, yes. Yeah. So much of, of goodness happens between small coffee talk or whatever your choice is, tea or water. So, or beer or whiskey or whatever it may be. So, cheers. Uh, we can podcast live drinking whiskey. Yeah, I will tell you that right. Yeah. I'm sure you probably try. Uh, you know, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, which was just a great place to grow up late 70s, 80s, uh, 90s. Obviously, it's right there in the mountains. So you have um, you know, just complete access to the best playground in the world, effectively. In the winters, you skied, snowboard. That's what we would do after school growing up is you would, you know, you'd hike, not hills, you'd hike mountains, you know, even in elementary school. And you were kind of self-taught skiing and snowboarding, even back then, the old, old school winter stick boards. And that taught us a lot of this, you know, in hindsight about you know managing a chaotic environment but the freedom of, of play which was really cool and then obviously the traditional sports are really big there football's big in the fall uh soccer is actually a spring sport in utah when i was growing up and then uh winter you you wrestled you skied you played basketball basketball is really big uh in utah you know everybody played on three or four different basketball teams growing up and in the spring you picked your poison a lot of people that was baseball uh soccer and then certainly when i got to high school the choice was pretty clear for me was rugby. Most of my uh, friends, their older brothers played football and rugby. And, um, you know, so that was, that was a great program to join. I played at Highland and they'd won, you know, X number of national championships before I got there. Great program. But more importantly, Larry just did a fantastic job developing the whole person. Uh, you know, he was, he was really down to earth, but you learned how to work. And that was the first time I really learned about ritual and tribalism and how important that is uh and to and to toil to work really hard you know every day outside of practice we practice five days a week you had to run two miles and you had to run 50 um you know 10 50 meter sprints and 10 100 meter sprints every day and you didn't lie except for a sunday you rested and, and saturday was match day and that was pretty special to learn and go through that experience with 100 other 
hundred other guys, um, you know, and, and, and then certainly there was a reward at the end. You, you won national championships and you got to travel the world and play very competitive matches. So by my senior year, we had been to Australia, New Zealand and had some successes against uh, peers, but we had an enormously talented team. You know, that generation of Highland rugby, four guys went on to play in the NFL, right? So it just shows you the caliber of athletes. You know, Holoti Nato was a few years younger. What was he, like 315 <laughs> in high school? Played number eight, but could run a 4.7. You know, it was just absurd, absurd athlete and great human. And um, you had a lot of athletes like that who went on to great things in other sports. So I learned that. And then um, I tried to get as far away from Utah as I could after high school, you know, just to get away from that experience and that life and, uh, you know, to, to have some another experience for four years. So I ended up way in New England north of New England that also at Dartmouth College also had great skiing which you know is a passion of mine and historically very very strong rugby program I ended up um, also trying crew my freshman year in oh. addition to rugby <laughs> yeah, exactly. hey, like, I, yeah. I mean it, yeah. crew is great if you want to be a lock apparently because you've got a what was it a guy who I, I think he plays for Newcastle right now Alex Simons uh, was a was a crew athlete growing up into what I guess what they call college, but high school. Yeah. And then, you know, eventually became a professional rugby player. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the, I mean, it's interesting, like crew specifically is very different. Um, it's a women's NCAA sport, but it's a men's club sport, but the kind of athlete that you have that, that is a rower for men, um, even at the, the Ivy league club level is pretty, I mean, you're talking world-class um, guys at yeah. that sport. Yeah, yeah. And so, first of all, m most of the institutions that still really support uh, crew, women and men, the women uh, report through NCAA, the men report through IRA, whatever the, the name of their collegiate. But those are still varsity programs, so they're treated like varsity programs on a lot of those college campuses, you know, Cal, Stanford. Well, I don't know. I think Stanford just cut some sports. Yeah, the IV. They cut, they yeah, cut yeah. 11. Yeah, it was awesome. a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, and real athletes. You're right. And, and the great thing about rowing is the erg doesn't lie. Like, it really doesn't. <laughs> Individually, you have to hit your numbers every day. And uh, you're also part of a, you know, you're rowing with eight, and you're only as strong as your weakest link. So it was a great little experience, but clearly continue to chase rugby through college as I studied engineering. Um, it was just so much fun, you know, playing, playing rugby. That was right when you started to see college campuses start going a bit more professional in the approach. So coaches were starting to get paid. There was medical attention to be get, given to it. There was preseasons. Uh, so you're starting to see that shift in the mid-90s. And so I was fortunate that I was on campus when that shift was happening. So by the time I got to my senior year in college, um, you know, I was, I was picked to play for the national team, played sevens, and then, you know, pretty quickly spent the summer in Aspen and then played 15s, was captain 15s for the U.S. And so that's kind of how I continued my journey. Uh, fortunately, that happened pretty young in my in my career, so I was able to really understand and be able to dedicate the next four or five years of my life to being a player, where that's it, a harder proposition back then. If you don't get that cap early on, you're chasing it. Okay, when is that? When am I going to get that opportunity? Uh, so I was fortunate um, in, in my age group to be able to, to be able to do that. Now we have MLR, right? We have a professional pathway, certainly for the men's side of things, that uh, allows folks to you know make that decision early on. I'm going to chase this. I'm going to try to be a professional for the next you know three to fifteen years. Uh, so yeah, that was my that was my journey. So, on so, the, that's, so that's 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 I guess that's more of a thirty thousand foot view, but let's dig in let's 
talk about Highland a little bit. You, you mentioned, you know, reward for, I mean, five days a week as a high school kid for rugby is still abnormal. There are very few programs that do that, but you were, when I look at, when you look at, when you examine the resume of Alex Bagley in high school, why didn't you go, did, how did you not get recruited to go play? Cause this will be a question I asked later on when it came, came to you being high performance manager. Yeah. So you were a high level rugby and football athlete. You left I mean, I can understand trying to leave a certain experience. I went from, yeah. you know, Southern California to the Virginia Military Institute. I tried to get yeah. as far away from everything I knew. And I would say I changed a whole lot in college. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but, um, but so why, you know, obviously won some national high school championships. Obviously a movie was sort of focused around that experience even though I will tell you, I that movie is it's just it's rough. It's rough. We need, do a remake, um, you know. Yeah, and, but in the background of all of that, right, and the, the greatness of you know Larry, but all the coaches that came and went through that program, and all the players that came and went through that program, the the behavior norms were were the same throughout, and that's a really important, I think, lesson for a lot of us. And uh, you, you did the same things, you, even though they 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 adapted with time as more information was known about the game, but. You know, we were watching, we were watching, doing video scouting of opponents, and certainly video as a as a teaching tool. Uh, and this is mid '90s in rugby, and a lot of rugby purists thought that was absolutely crazy and silly, and that's part of the game. Certainly, as rugby went professional '95, we saw a big change in that. But I think American rugby coaches were kind of the first to really dig into that. Not only Larry, and we saw that with Coach Clark, and the, you know he was probably the first sports code user, uh, probably in any sport, but certainly in uh, in rugby, heading into that '99 World Cup and coming out of that. Um, so well ahead of their time in terms of using video and and data as a as a teaching tool. So for for you, like why I guess did you also like you talked about trying to row crew at, at Dartmouth, but did I mean team captain on uh, on in the other in the I have one the hand egg code I guess they call it the the pigskin. Um, so why I guess away from gridiron because so many players, so many of the best rugby players today are still elite in another sport. Yeah. So I guess why um, I mean, and I know this. I, I it's probably you know. Obviously, high achieving academically, you could just choose wherever you want, whatever you wanted to do. So why, I guess, um, engineering at Dartmouth and not maybe staying home and going to to Utah and play football, if that was even yeah, a choice, so, I don't yeah, know. So I, was at the, I was debating, you know, going to Naval Academy, I got a presidential appointment. You got to decide that before you hear from other schools. Uh, I decided that I was going to wait to hear from other schools. Uh, the Naval Academy is a fantastic. It was a great visit. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely what they do for, for young men and women, leadership-wise and everything else. That was really important to me. I wanted to give give to our uh, uh, back to our country. I thought service in that aspect would be would be really good. Um, for me, it wasn't the right thing at the right time. And so I decided to kind of wait and to hear from the other schools um, and then, you know, got into a bunch of the Ivies as a student. And so that was going to be my dedication was to, was to be a student. I wasn't even going to play rugby in college. And um, I was first day, freshman freshman week, walking down the hall. I was wearing a Highland rugby T-shirt. Someone said, uh, you, you played at Highland? I was like, yeah, yeah I played at Highland. He's like, are you going to 
come we have rugby training today and it was kevin witcher i don't know if you know kevin but kevin um, you know, played played for the us sevens team another ginger uh, uh fantastic human fantastic player you know, got got an a cap in, in 15s and then was part of that whole um you know uh, denver barbarians crew for a long long time that had a lot of success on the field but anyway so 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 which soul man was the one who's like, oh, you should come out. And again, it's rugby and you show up like anywhere in the world. And suddenly you have 50 really good people who are from all different walks of life, from every socioeconomic background. And you're welcome because you're willing to do the work with them. You know, and that's just the great thing about rugby. So I had that experience again in college uh, and, I, and I got hooked again. Okay. So, uh, you know, how did you balance sort of at the beginning being a, a national team athlete? You you talked about you know being in this in this sort of stream that if you don't get capped early, uh, you you're kind of gone. And you you see this in a lot of other sports still today. I think a, a player that was identified and brought into the U.S. rugby program, um, being Alev Kelter, was. You know, in hockey, she hit every wicket and was in Olympic training camp. And and if you are like basically that age and you don't make the Olympic team or you don't make that world championship team, you basically get lost. And that was the case in the 90s. Well, I wouldn't say I got lost, but I, I think the point there is that a lot of people continue that grind and end up making it to the national team. I probably, where I was in my life, you know, it's like, am I going to chase rugby after, you know, being and, and being fortunate to get in and accepted in an Ivy League school? Um, you know, it was well above my means financially to do that. Uh, and it was a game changer. So am I doing that or am I going in investment banking, right? So in, in that regard, it was like that grind. Um, okay, well, I've, I've, I've actually gotten an, a window into what that world could be like having been capped before I graduated. So making that decision to chase that down was a bit easier. Um, but always I was looking, you know, the grass is always greener. I was always looking, well, did I make that wrong decision by not going to a Morgan Stanley, right? And, and I spent much of my 20s, like a lot of people do, kind of questioning, am I doing the right thing? Am I really chasing the right thing? And, um, and, and I was going through that. So it was easier and I was lucky because that decision, that window was opened early on in my, in my career. So I was able to see through that, which was good. When a lot of people don't necessarily get that opportunity and they really have to grind uh, even more so uh, against the grain of doing some other things. I can, I can, I can definitely understand like where, cause at a certain point, you know, like everyone has that um, moment, especially playing rugby, whether it's as a club athlete that has no chance like me <laughs> of ever seeing national team aspirations. Um, just, you know, how much, um, cause rugby takes a lot of time. You know, I, I still compete as an athlete in triathlon but like just rugby in general, like once you're an adult, once you have, I would say obligations, children, wife, whatever, um, you know, going to rugby training even two days a week and playing a game on Saturday takes a lot of time. And I now sort of seeing in a sense clubs sort of fall apart. I see the issues with, you know, adulthood and rugby and trying to figure out how you sort of, you know, alleviate clubs pressure with adults who just can't, it's not because they're not committed to the game. They just can't commit so much time. And I think, I think, and we could talk about how the club rugby is structured and how it doesn't really help itself um, on the amateur side to just be sort of a recreational grow the sport 
game for adults right but i can see i can totally see what you're saying is like do i make the plunge into the new york finance scene which is going to take a lot of time or do i commit to playing this sport that i really love and you obviously chose to you know continue playing and it did reward you some you got to you know coach the sevens team you got um you know um, eight appearances with the 15s and, and now you're, you know, the CEO of a, an MLR team. So it seems it, it did, it worked out okay. Um, so going into the sevens team, how was, I mean, those years under Al Caravelli and then you end up taking over the program. Obviously there wasn't a residence program at the time. How did you, you know, maneuver to play, I guess, basically as full time as you could, but also, you know, continue progressing in life. Cause I think, you know, a lot of, we don't really, people that aren't, weren't paying attention much don't really know what that era was like before 2012. Yeah. And, and when I was, so when I got back with my first caps, 15s and sevens, there was um, the, the leadership of certainly on the men's side of performance rugby in the United States of the Eagles was very strong. You know, Jack Clark, Tom Billups was the, was the head coach of the, of the 15s program. And oversee effectively overseeing sevens, so they provide us a lot of opportunity. And you know, you start, you, you know, they, they brought in the Jack brought in the, the B Sky B deal and a lot of other things, the Adidas deal that were real, that were big time, that really helped the program have some stabilization. And so we were able to be supported as athletes um, when we made the teams uh, to do those things. And then they worked really hard behind the scenes to get us other opportunities. So I was able to travel the world and play. Uh, you know, I spent a summer in Aspen uh, working really hard, you know, working bars at night, working construction in the day and training for rugby, you know, running, running the hills, running the U trail. It, it was a great experience. Um, was able to then travel the world with US 15s, US 7s, then, you know, through their help was able to get a time in New Zealand, uh, you know, towards that development of, of playing with North Harbor up and I was playing for a club Silverdale, which was fantastic. Uh, so there were, those opportunities existed, but just in different ways. Um, they were just different if you were at that level and we were well supported uh, because of that. But at the end of the day, yeah, you weren't going to pay the bills and you weren't going to pay off your student loans and everything else. So you had to be creative what else you were going to do. Uh, so for me, that was also coaching in the off season. Uh, there was an opportunity to come back to Dartmouth as an assistant coach in the off season. So I did that and fell in love with coaching while I was still playing. Uh, and then as I progressed as a coach, I realized there were certain tools that I didn't actually have for my own quality control. There weren't a lot of other coaches around to help provide that quality control. Uh, so I got really heavy into analytics uh, and found that just some of the software wasn't capable of what we needed to do. So we started a distribution company of kind of aggregating software from around the world that was really good at, at certain things uh, at assessing and using uh, video as a teaching tool. So we started a company um, pretty early on, even my playing career. So I was doing that when I wasn't playing. Uh, so I had that opportunity, but again, that was really just me selfishly trying to become a better coach. So the only way I could do that is, is to provide this distribution channel. Okay. So now other people have that opportunity. And so I was lucky to be able to kind of work through that as an entrepreneur and, and make that happen. So how do you, I mean, even like at this time, I, I know what we, what MLR is using for advanced analytics now and you know, what, I guess I get in my work email uh, on uh, on a Monday morning <laughs> is very advanced. I mean, you you get you obviously see that stuff right now. Um, you know, being the CEO and general manager of an MLR team, but it's just 
it's very interesting to see like what we actually have and what's going on and you know how advanced you can get and not really in a sense money ball your team because it's still I mean 23 guys on a roster but you need a roster that's probably at least 35 to 40 guys maybe 45 depending on how your injuries are because I mean if we go all the way back to season one San Diego used cap 42 different people in season one. So that was only an eight game season spread out over, I think 11 weeks. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't, um, and in a season now like that MLR had in season two and planned for this year, which was a 16, 16 week regular season with, um, this year was one by week, like the grind that you have, um, for, uh, that requires actually a lot of depth. And I think you guys are working, um, you guys did some evaluation on that side, but for, so looking on the analytics side, so when did you not, not necessarily the analytics side, but going back to when you were playing, when did you make the decision or did, when did you get approached to take over as coach of the sevens team? Because, and then you end up, I would say it's you abruptly leave um, for, I mean, your own reasons, but like, the the team had made a lot of strides under under the period when you coached that it was kind of a shock at the time and then um obviously also replaced by matt hawkins that didn't really i don't that didn't really go that well and then mike friday comes in but going back to your time as coach when did you get approached to take over the program obviously you were also coaching at dartmouth and had some had a not some but a lot of success with sevens at the crc's yeah, so take, 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 just taking a step back, the rugby landscape in the United States, kind of at that, you know, 2000 and, and then you know, 2001, 2002, the 15s program and the 7s program were both doing very well. Um, you know, 7s, we were only on three events in 2001, and we had enough points to kind of be in that top eight. You know, we were in the semifinals at New Zealand. We beat Fiji. It was funny. I played against uh, Coach Friday. You know, he was with England. You know, they were singing Born in the USA and, and, and in the Cape Town in Wellington back when they used to pack that for seven. It was awesome. We won the plate at Hong Kong. Um, good things were happening. And that again, that was without full-time residency and everything else. Uh, and, and certainly that was kind of when you saw the, the, the Eagles 15s, you know, with Haji Lyle and a whole bunch of other other great players on the field, having a really good World Cup that, you know, a couple things go differently. And it's a, it's a very good World Cup. Uh, so you were starting to see that happen. And then USA Rugby kind of at the administrative level, the executive level had to go through some changes, you know, 2004, 2005. Um, so there were some changes to what was being resourced for national teams um, across the board. And that probably had an impact. And we saw that, um, you know, I, I ended up retiring in 2005 on the field, but I think a lot of that was happening behind the scenes. And then, um, you know, Al took over the program in 2006, 2007, and really had to start from scratch and rebuild that. And he did a heck of a job rebuilding that whole that whole sevens program eventually getting to that point where the usoc okay it's going to be in the olympics uh, let's get some funding from the usoc for residency for for, for, for men and women and so al really saw that growth uh, so when i came in i had you know i, I, I coached dartmouth sevens and fifteens i coached the collegiate all americans uh 15s uh, three years in a row and then uh, and again a lot of great players came through that uh, and that was back in the days when you still had the National All-Star Collegiate Championship, which was really, really helpful from a collecting random players from around the country and putting them through a system 
where they compete against each other. So, so, so suddenly, you know, D3 uh, Minnesota uh, uh, student athlete is able to be playing against, um, you know, player from BYU or Cal and, and competing. And that was great to see. And so you saw a lot of players come through that way that made it into the, the national team setups. And I think that's how even Paul Emmerich came through back then and Matt Huckabee and a long list, um, Hayden Smith. Um, you, you, there's a lot, a lot of guys that came out of that generation that were probably first identified at the old national star collegiate championship that kind of disappeared when sevens came on to the scene. There just was not enough time in the collegiate rugby calendar. It seemed, but that was great. That was a great tool. So I was, I was, uh, I was able to be a part of that experience and then uh, coached the Collegial Americans, and then we started restarted the sevens Collegial American season. So I was I was fairly well prepared um, when um, Al decided to step away, or you know whatever happened there, to come in kind of the end of that season. We didn't have kids yet, and really be a part of of that program, assess it. Okay, what do we need to do? And then we spent basically the next year uh, kind of putting systems in place to to help us get to where we needed to, and that's what that. To end of 2012 2013 season was really about by the end those last four tournaments we were you know playing in the top five in the in the world and probably underperformed in the in the world cup based on where we where we were um but you know programs that came out of that certainly the golden eagles the falcons development uh, you know and there's a long list of those that we've been able to leverage up the, the olympic development academy which was fantastic for what it, it the purpose it served at the time um, and there was a lot of really good players that got those repetitions with the Northeast, with Tiger, uh, with uh, the Otsrevi Atavis. Um, and, and so it was, those were actually really good programs that helped the program continue. You layer in great, great athletes uh, and then really significantly great coaches and, and physical performance, uh, strength conditioning. And that, that team uh, is, is, is pretty special now. So, I mean, like I said, uh, like I said, you had – I guess built on, you know, what Al did and you had a significant amount of success while you coached, um, you know, the sevens team. And then there was a transition because I, I know you're a systems guy because we've talked about this before, yeah. but um, have you, you probably have read a bunch of Jim Collins books. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, when it, it had a massive influence on me as a young, uh, so on the, on the business side of the house, like Jim Collins talks in, in, in a more than a few books, it's like great companies are built on are built basically two ways. There's systems and you just put people into the system and, and they just work. And then there's companies that are built on people. And most of the time, um, those companies that achieve greatness based on people tend to falter if the selection for people to succeed, whoever the whoever those leaders are, um, fails. And most often it is really hard to um, replace say a Bezos, um, in, but Amazon yeah. is so big at, that. I hope that their systems are in place yeah. at this point but good enough, right? If that person's good enough, um, hopefully they've, they've, they've been able to build systems that have sustainable success. Yeah. So the charismatic leader was what you're talking about. Yeah. Right. But if, if that person is, is, is able to get others around them that can, if, if that's not her, his skill set. Uh, certainly bring in others who can um, build those systems for long-term success, uh, then, then I think it works. So what is really important is my point. Like, like talent is really important in the front office and the executive on the field. Like talent is really important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just interesting to, I mean, cause we, on Monday we talked, uh, you know, systems and yeah. like, especially with Ryan Martin 
and you know we'll get to that but it was it's so in a sense it's refreshing to like hear people talk about systems because in a sense i would say i am a a people sort of person but i would say i'm like when i look at um collins and stuff i'm like a hybrid because i understand that you need systems like because i came through i mean you see on my wall um army stuff well yeah. the the service is like one of the most systems driven um places out there when it comes to like just business in general like we have a system yeah. like and we just put people through the system and the people who are the greatest um they become four stars and the people who are not that good they get jettisoned yeah. i mean that's just how that that and that's because that's how that I mean, what the service is a life or death sort of thing, especially when you go overseas, but that's just when it's that big and your specific duty or role is, I guess, combat, like that's how you have to treat things. But in a sense where people matter, but systems need to be the foundation of pretty much, I would say any company, whether it's a sports team or not, because if you don't have them, then you're reliant, you're every, I mean, there's a lot of weak links if you only focus on people. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, remember, you know, keep the data close, but uh, keep the humanity closer, and that's really, really important. And it, you, you can, you can flex your systems, and you should be flexing your systems for, for the personnel that are available, and they'll change, and you have to be able to have adaptable structures in order to do so, right? And yeah. That's what happens every day with teams and um, you know, certainly businesses uh, that that are able to succeed in the long term. I think one of the I think one of your greatest successes as a systems manager, and I'm not even talking about like USA Rugby stuff, is the continuous success. I mean, obviously Dartmouth had great success before you got there, great success with you, but you've been a technical advisor for the program since you stepped away, and you guys have continuously hired um, great young coaches that have kept the program um at its level or exceeded the level it was at how do you i mean i guess spend some time managing um help manage dartmouth so that the systems are in place for their, your own monitor to succeed on the field yeah and i think if you look at teams that are really successful certainly in our sport there is a there's a component of longevity there um, you know, it's, for Dartmouth, that's been a, a board of governors that has, has existed for a long, long time. That's really helped provide stability, right? And what we decided to do pretty early on, uh, especially when I had opportunities to go coach the national team, is make sure that the team itself had some stability for young coaches who are coming in, which it's, it's, it's a hard environment to come in, right? You're, you could be a world-class coach, but you come into a uh, a student-driven, academic-focused environment. They're, they're, it's just a different environment than what you're going to get if you're working with professionals or high school students who may have a different focus. Not that anyone is easier or harder, they're just different, right? So having success in those is is uh, is potentially different. So just my, my, my role and what I really enjoy is, is working with, learning from, and mentoring the coaches and the, and the players as they come through. And that's the role I play is, is there to help mentor and um, you know, it's two decades plus if you add in when I was a player. So I certainly understand, um, you know, the, the academic mission of the university and certainly in the IVs. And it's a language that I've probably been able to speak a lot and, and see issues. You know, we, we certainly, when I was a young coach, we, 
we had some problems and we learned to adjust it, but there's no reason having to repeat that. And you see that with, with unfortunately, some of our college teams that do really well, charismatic personal lead, uh, leader who does a fantastic job recruiting, getting admissions buy-in and all these other really important steps. That person moves on because that's a grind and there is not yet other systems in place to really allow that to continue. So continuity, I think, is a really, really important thing. And yeah, effectively, it's continuity is key. You know, how long yeah. has Clark been at Cal? And they've had, what, five head coaches in 100 years, something like that? I, I mean, continuity is – I think when it comes to rugby teams, especially college, it's how much off-the-field support you have because it's really hard to – um, to dom I guess dominate like Cal has without resources. Um, obviously, Dartmouth has had its periods of of domination because of the resources that the alumni um, have given to the university for the rugby program for both the men's and women's um, programs. Like Dartmouth, um, really being a very young uh, varsity women's um, sport, won the national championship um, two years ago. Um, they have a long, a really strong tradition, right? The, the women's program yeah, has a long do. tradition. So, and great. You, well, you have, I mean, it's, I, I would say it's probably the, the men's and women's um, rugby programs of Dartmouth, the, the traditions that are, are relatively generational because you have uh, players whose parents played right. for Dartmouth men um, and their daughters are going to play for, for Dartmouth women or, you know, vice versa. You know, like the, the traditional, like, uh, I guess the tribalism that you have there draws people back. And the fact that it's a high achieving academic university kind of fits well, you know, with our sport. Um, so moving forward. So you so you leave sevens um, and you become the high performance manager. Well, there's, uh, a trend, there's a break there because I. I wanted to, my wife was in med school, right? And I was on one side of the country and she was on the other side. And 11 months of the year, it's hard to build a family, right? And that's something that we really wanted to do. Uh, we always knew that this was going to be kind of a couple year um, situation. And um, I, I felt really good with where the program was going. And uh, it was the right time then to, okay, we want to go, we want to have children. So I, I decided I was going to leave. And that, that was a hard decision to make. Uh, but it was the right decision for me and my family. And so I was moving away from, from USA Rugby. And, you know, uh, six months later, I was uh, you know, talking to the former CEO. And there were some opportunities there that he needed help with. So I would come in. I came in as a consultant to help with those. And then that just that just grew uh, into, into other things. And we were able to, 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 to perform and do some things. And then that continues to grow, right? So... Um, that, that was the shift is, is my point. That was about 2013. So I think it came back on kind of 2014. Yeah. Um, um, around the same time that Mike was hired, I believe. Yeah. I was like, you know, kind of right before there, come in, um, you know, help move a couple of, of things forward. That was on the elite city sevens. We, we were trying to get that going, uh, which again, served a good purpose. Uh, that was when, you know, we had already started um, the Olympic development Academy, but it really needed just some energy, um, we hadn't started tracking camps yet. The Golden Eagles really needed energy, Falcons, and, and, and so forth. So you look at systems specifically for sevens. You have a, a, a booster group that um, you helped put together in in the Golden Eagles. And, and one of the things, and this is, I guess, one of the hard questions, and maybe it's not – it's definitely – the high-performance manager is definitely not the person that's supposed to develop a, a – a, uh, 
a foundation of people for philanthropy. I mean, you well, in no, general. Well, I mean, that's what that's what I, that's the part where I always don't understand. With well, a lot of people come into this, and they come into the roles they do, they get it at the NGB and at others, and it's the expectation is that some other system or some other people are going to generate revenue, and we we can't exist as a, a USA Rugby can't exist as an NGB if that's what if that's what happens or keeps happening is everybody involved has to be part of the revenue generation. Oh, right? I, I, I completely agree. Like, yeah, I completely it, agree. It's departmentalizing hey. that and, and giving it to people who are less, who aren't as close to the coal face uh, makes it more challenging. You've seen that like, you know, Emily in, in the great work she's done, she's at that coal face and, and, and she's been able then to raise more money uh, for the women's programs because she understands what's happening and what the needs are. Yeah. Right? It's like, okay, we have X, but we really need Y and Z. So let's figure out a way to, to make that happen. And that's where, that's where people can buy in because they know their resources, their dollars are going to have a positive immediate effect and change. And that's really important. I look at, cause I, I mean, I, I, I send dollars to, to VMI athletics every year, even though I wasn't a varsity athlete yeah. there. Um, and I look at what we do and I look at what USA rugby has done in the past. And I think that on the philanthropy side, you know, we've, we've failed a lot and being at the coal face, I think whether it's the high performance manager or the Eagles head coach or the Eagles sevens head coach or the college all Americans head coach. I mean, the role of philanthropy for you guys, whether it's directly raising money as you have, is to always be in contact and like to as many events as possible because they, I mean, I don't really care about talking to the, the development officer that calls me. I want the, I'm donating to the baseball program. I want to yeah. hear about the baseball team and I want to talk. I, if I, you know, I want to, you know, get stuff from the players and find out what's going on or the coaching staff. I want to hear about right. them. I don't really want to hear about the development officer, but I think our, our pre our development officers that have worked in that space have done a very poor job of facilitating the systems that you a help put in place. Cause we have the golden Eagles supporting uh, men's and women's sevens now, but there really isn't a program that was developed alongside that to support um, men's and women's 15s. I mean, there's been some, attempts but it seems that the people who run philanthropy i, I don't know I, I don't read their emails i don't read their phone calls but it's just from on the outside I'm not, envious, I'm not envious of that role that's a challenging role and it yeah. has been it's it's a you know the, the people's passion for the game is the fun they have the camaraderie they have that's with their teammates that's with the clubs they were involved with in right that's what the colleges they went to it's not necessarily the ngb that insured them Right, the NGV can't win. Oh, yeah. NGV, yeah. like it doesn't. It doesn't matter. So, I, making that narrative and getting that narrative down, where you can really communicate the, the impact those dollars make, is hard to do. Yeah, um, at that mass level, because you have so many, so many things pulling on that. Right, um, USA Rugby has long, long tried to do a lot uh, with very little. So definitely not envious of um, folks who have tried to do that. Yeah, I just, I just look at it from a from a lens of being a member of the also a member of the triathlon NGB USA triathlon and they, their foundation has a lot 
of money. Look at the demographics, right? That's, it's a totally different. Oh yeah, I mean, forty-year-olds well, who are well employed. There are a lot of there are a lot of choosing to yeah forty-year-olds that play rugby still. Yeah, so they're like, okay. We're going to support this, right? And that's, um, but yes, but you know, me going out and playing, you know, forty-three-year-old, forty-two. How old am I? Forty-two-year-old rugby. Um, I'm going to support, you know, the groups that I'm playing with, right? Typically, yeah. that's that's yeah. what typically happens. And I want because I can see it. I can see it make a change. Oh, that's going to actually help this team travel to you know X, Y, and Z, or help the sixteen-year-old group um, have have coaches. So that's that's what I would want to support, and I understand that. It's my only, it's just interesting to see, you know, we've had some success here um, with this tight knit group of supporters to support sevens and just the overarching funding mechanism. Cause we're going to get into that of supporting age grade, which makes things very difficult um, as a high performance manager, when you're scouting, when the only way to get guys in to camp are mostly the people who can pay for it. And I look at, and the reason why I bring up USA Try, I use this as a as a an example all the time because they are very well run. They've raised a lot of money, and they have pushed that money down into the NCAA system to where I think they'll reach championship status um, in a year. They have thirty six women's NCAA programs now. For a college to support NCAA triathlon, you're talking a roster of about twelve and maybe two coaches. So it is a bit cheaper. I will admit that. But at the same time, I'm just looking at that wild success that that NGB has had and looking at, we have an NCAA initiative and we're not able to push a lot of resources, whether that's to the competition itself or to individual schools, which if we were somehow able to push resources to individual schools, then we'd be in a much healthier place on the women's NCAA initiative. And yeah, so I, I was high performance player. That would have been fantastic if there was a robust scholastic model, not a part of um, USA Rugby that I was able to, to, to operate and run. Uh, and there's no question that having a robust scholastic model is how we get the volume. That, that's a really, really important piece. Um, obviously, there's a couple of buzz saws that, is the, that initiative has, has tried on a few occasions to really grow and I think you've seen some some take hold and, and hopefully the new NGB that comes out is really able to help um, that get to the numbers that we need what it's 40 or 40 or 50 before it can 40 yeah yeah, yeah. So, which is a lot because yeah, yeah, resourcing that is really important and that, oh. that that's got to be a priority and I think years past we, we thought it was a priority and, and uh, maybe that wasn't executed properly so now digging into specifically high performance manager stuff, how, I mean, we've, before we get into the, I guess the last sort of system you tried to put in place, which was um, a, 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 an evolved or reformed pathway. Um, like I mentioned earlier in our discussion is like the best rugby athletes are elite in another sport especially on the men's side. Some of the women, because of the NCAA initiative, are choosing to stick with rugby, and we're seeing that. Um, I mean, the, the, the biggest one, of course, recently being Emily Henrik. You know, she was the M.A. Sorensen Award winner two years ago, um, and she got capped pretty early. But on the men's side, um, you have guys who are high school Americans that go that are just – they're just going to go play football. How does – is that a how, 
I guess is, is that a bad thing? I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing, especially with MLR existing now. If guys like you and guys like Ryan Fitzgerald and Brandon Sparks are able to pay attention because not all of these guys are going to go to the NFL, but they are going to go to a, an environment where they will be in, in, in a sense, elite learning and elite physical conditioning to where they can come out as extremely well-built athletes that can come back to rugby. We've seen that um, by choice with Saul Wuching, who is, you know, did the same thing, you know, Frank Palamo did the same thing. And I think that's really important. And, you know, that's why a few years ago we started to build that out and, Dan, when he was CEO, that was really important to him is just making sure we're identifying those athletes, whatever sport they may go into. And there's actually some that were going into soccer, D1 soccer, wrestling, uh, and certainly football. And, um, you know, making sure we're tracking them and, and giving it to the best we possibly can to come back into the sport. And that's certainly one of many re-entry points that, you know, the USA Rugby High Performance Group really needs to be focusing on as, as they grow. But it's one of many, I think, right? Yeah. Um, so we, what was the difficulty when you were high performance manager, not necessarily for the elite athletes, um, but more so identifying athletes who were, I guess, elite enough that were going to stay in rugby um, in going into college at the high school American level and the U20 level and even the college All-Americans. The system that we currently have basically doesn't support, um, I guess, free age grade uh, for the entire squad to be able to come to camp and compete and get a slot in the top 30 of those specific programs for free. They yeah. basically, a lot of them have to pay for that. If it's important to those um, groups, I think it's really important for it to be resourced by those groups, right? So when I was coaching the Cleach All-American, I would you know, go out and I'd raise a hundred thousand a year budget for that program. And we were all volunteers so that, you know, we could go to South Africa and we could go to New Zealand and we could have those experiences, right? That was really, really important. We also had the benefit, like we talked about earlier, of the National All-Star Collegiate Championship. We kind of did a lot of that filtering. And some of that was, was pay to play. You know, you played for your territory. Some of that was subsidized. Maybe you got your flight out to, we added at Glendale a lot. Um, those, stu those, those student athletes would come out to Glendale and, you know, they'd be playing for the Northeast or for the Midwest. And depending on the, the territory you're at is would, would determine the number the, the funding they would give you, give those athletes. And then we were lucky we could pick the best of that bunch and we had resourced it enough. So we could, we could send them, we could send them on a, on a tour. Most of that was subsidized. Every once in a while there was a flight or something else that had to be thrown in there and we'd help create opportunities for, for the students to sell tickets, things like that. You, you get creative, but you can figure out a way to, way to get it done. Um, but there wasn't like money coming from the NGB's dues that were able to then go to those all-star teams. And again, there was, there was another group of folks who were deciding what that money was being spent on, the dues that were coming into USA Rugby and there was collegiate committees and everything else. And they, they determined that it was more important to be running national championships and other things, which is great. And that's what that membership base wanted to do. So they should have that choice. Um, but the idea that, that, the, that the national teams are creating enough revenue, which we all know they're not, right, commercially or otherwise, that then has the opportunity to filter down into the development programs, is that's, that's, that's a formula that's not going to work for USA Rugby, you know, in the foreseeable future. The national teams really only exist. Uh, because of philanthropy and grants from, 
USOC and World Rugby. It doesn't mean that those commercial dollars aren't important and those commercial partners aren't getting you know great return on on their investments in those teams, but uh, it's it's not nearly enough for those teams themselves for the for the you know four major national teams, let alone the senior development sides that are in those, let alone every every other step below it. So. It's it's just interesting because you see some of, um, in a sense, some of the best college rugby players that get extended other opportunities that are world rugby sponsored specifically. Um, you know, there were a few players out of life a couple of years ago. Um, I think a player from Iona and a player from BYU that were brought in to um, be a part of that um, America's Combine. Um, and they were that got a, a bunch of uh, South American guys contracts in the MLR and they were underclassmen and they got to play high level rugby for like three weeks with all these international players. And then they go back to their college and they're like, well, I did that. And uh, paying two grand for a week and a half for all Americans is yeah, like, I don't have that money, <laughs> you know? But that also that, that also statement is that that we we fundamentally understand that are those teams the actual entry point into and the only entry point into the national teams and there'd be a lot of ways to argue yes and a lot of ways to argue no right test match rugby especially, especially requires now. yeah test match rugby requires a certain physicality and um, mental toughness that is going to be very very discover very hard to discover in an eighteen year old it doesn't mean that a pool of you know really high quality skilled rugby players that have been trying to hone that craft, their skills for, you know, all through high school and youth rugby aren't going to, you know, you create a bigger funnel basically, but to pick a needle out of the haystack at 18 uh, is a very, very difficult thing to do. Right. Yeah, you don't have a control group right now to say, well, here's the group that did it a different way. So therefore, you know, we know this is, this is the best thing to resource. That's a not a known, you know, and I think, I think we can going back to this classic model that creates the volume. And if it's not that, then let's augment it with, the fixed costs that a lot of the MLR teams are putting in to coaching and other things to help this classic model improve, to help those coaches improve, um, to help those environments be better for, for the student athletes. I, 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 I would say I agree, but uh, it's kind of, you know, it's just preaching to the choir on sort of things that need to happen. It's just, um, and you know, I talk about this, especially at the collegiate level, is like, what does college rugby want itself to be? Does it want to be this, I guess, this thing it was in the 70s and 80s where guys just, you know, you know, uh, you know, the idea was that they were just other frats. Um, or do we want to be a performance leadership development system that also feeds into um, the national teams? But now that there is an MLR, that there is an actual tangible uh, professional outlet, I think we have to look at college rugby differently because the purpose of going to college, going to university and the purpose of why these institutions exist and why even athletics exist. We talk at Ray Anderson here, the, um, the ASU uh, athletic vice president for athletics says university athletics is leadership development through athletic competition. Sure. Not just, you know, putting guys on the putting guys on the pitch for for whatever, but it's leadership development through athletic competition. And now that, and part of that is, you know, college exists to develop and educate people for the workforce. That is the real reason why university here in the United States has gotten such, in a sense, compulsory, um, because it 
to develop people for the workforce. And now that we have a professional outlet for rugby players, I think there needs to be a reevaluation at that level to say, what do we want college rugby to be? Because there is a professional outlet and we have to develop. We are, it is a disservice to not develop our players for the workforce, and they now have the option to be professional rugby players. I think, yeah, and I think, Aaron, you've seen some programs uh, more today than you did 20 years ago who have cho chosen to take that path, and, and that's really important. And we need more of those, right? We, we need more of the of the cows of the world and, and others uh, to, to really drive this. There, there's no question. There's also a place in college for recreation and intramural and club type of, of activities, and they're not we don't have to pick one path or the other, but we do have to make sure we support because we want participants, right? We want fans of the game and who really get into the, the core of the game and that's the values of the game and the camaraderie and just the fun, you know, competing and having fun. Uh, we, we want that. Uh, it's also really important. And we can have that too by having high performance collegiate programs. It's just, it's hard, right? Who's going to fund oh, yeah. it? <laughs> and that's like that's the thing. It's that NGB is not going to drive that. The NGB can help. Oh, no help shape the environment, um, but the NGB is not going to be the answer for that. That is going to be um, groups of people who really are committed to that institution providing that educational opportunity um, for, for, for men and certainly for women. You know, that, that's, it's got to come from that. And then the NGB or, or whatever the association is that works with, with college rugby, um, you know, really can help help provide a better environment and some tools, but that's really got to be driven by folks that want to make that happen. Yeah. I think the, the idea, and when I talk to college folks about this is like the idea that removing, like if the sport, if the, if the environment is good, there will always be fun, especially even at the elite level. Sure. Now, when we try to transition clubs to high performance, you can still have the, I guess, the ability for the club to a be fun or to also be recreational um, for the non a side. You can, I think Josh Macy uh, over at Lindenwood does a very good job of this. Their program is 80 male student athletes. Yeah, Josh is a great coach. So he's, he's seen it from a lot of different angles at this stage. And so it's, it's, so that's just one, that's just one example because there are others, but I've, I think I've spoken to Josh like this summer, so it just popped into my head. But they're they're not the only one that has such large programs that allows yeah. guys to play recreational rugby, but also proceed through a performance pathway. Yeah. And I think that's sort of until I think the the chance of men going NCAA is specifically tied to women achieving championship status. Um, now being you, you brought up rowing earlier, we talked about rowing earlier, and I don't, I don't think you, you, it has to be NCAA to be successful in it. Oh, I don't, I don't think so either. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so either. I think that men's rugby going NCAA is specifically tied to women's rugby achieving championship status, but that doesn't stop schools from investing in in high performance for rugby because we've seen it with you know Lindenwood Life all of these smaller schools that, you know, they, they, they like the sport and they want to throw some resources behind it. And you see those schools developing MLR ready players. Right. So, and then there's just different motivations, right. For each institution that does that, you know, one, it may be attracting international um, 
uh, student body uh, or supporting the international student body they already have one more um, uh, male male students in the more male student population one branding um, there's, there's many many reasons why an institution may get behind that uh, but I, I do I, I do agree that the, the college piece is really important to increase in the volume of athletes who can who can compete at the next level so I guess this is probably the hardest question I'll get to before we specifically talk oh, about you've been it. setting up. Okay. Oh, the setting of all these work. I, I was hoping I, 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 where are you going with this? Where are you going? So, so where am I? So we sort of, so the last system that you attempted to put into place um, at the NGB when you were high performance manager yeah. was the revamped performance pathway. And you and I were on a call about this. Yeah. I think it was three years ago and yeah. I was lobbing some tough questions at you, but okay. my question about that, is we talked about Eagle files. We talked about, um, I don't even remember what this document was called anymore, um, but we'll just call it the pathway that included MLR, included an elite, sub-elite. American Rugby. Sub yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it included a sub-elite amateur model, which with the way club rugby is going now for the senior side, um, that no longer fits in my yeah. assessment because just it's just everything, yeah. depending yeah. on, like all most of division one is in a sense, it's kind of crumbling. Um, you've seen the PRP drop to four teams, the ARP kind of struggling for sort of membership um, with two teams in Georgia, life university and the four pathway 404 plugging into that sort of to, to stop it from falling apart. Yeah. Right. And um, then the, I think the, and then sort of not as many teams um, coming into the Red River and same with Midwest. So it's just, it's becoming very hard because of the cost of travel now to support for clubs to support division one rugby at the level that would require sub elite competition. And this is where sort of MLR teams sort of fill in with club partnerships for developing athletes that you draft the year before guys that you sign right. undrafted that you can, in a sense, loan out to clubs that you have relationships with to support that system. But not everyone plays rugby in the fall either, um, right. especially out here in the West. So how did, like you you guys implanted the system and my biggest question the entire time is like funding, how do we fund this? And in a sense, it's like, well, the, the age grade kids, um, the model stays the same right now. Um, but how do, well, the, yeah, the funding mechanism, it was, it was never envisioned that the NGB was going to come in and, and, and be paying for things. That was basically saying what it currently exists, right, in rugby in this country. What are the forces that have been driving rugby? Where are they today? Okay, now how can we inch that forward into getting into a situation where we perhaps have a bit more seasonality and sanity around that? for the development of an athlete, right? Rugby let's insanity. Let's, let's not yeah. talk about rugby insanity. Let's provide a language at least that we all can speak um, so that the, then, then we can disagree, right? But if we're not defining those things and understanding where we're disagreeing and also understanding where we want to get to, let's define where we want to get to and what's important. Um, and, and that may be different, but let's at least define that. And that, that was that whole purpose. It wasn't to say that here is a the only way we're going to be successful. Here's the blueprint and we're going to pay for it. That was never... Um, certainly the vision. It was an articulation of what was happening. How can we move a couple seven tur sevens tournaments here? How can we try to get certain um, levels of, of play uh, to be playing in a certain season that then feed into other seasons, right? So 
um, young athletes aren't being asked to play rugby for 11 months of the year. You know, we, that was not a path that we really wanted to go to. So let's start with principles and then let's work from there. We'll, we'll really start with the end in mind, establish our principles and then work from there. And that was the whole point. It was really to, to establish discussion and dialogue, which is, is, is an important piece for this thing to continue to move forward. I think with, I mean, whether it's senior rugby or youth rugby, um, you know, we talk about rugby people. Um, I think we are poisoned, and I use that word poisoned, by the fact that um, we look at the other countries and how they do rugby. And some, a lot of people want to take that model and play 11 months out of the year here. Commonwealth model, yeah. Yeah, and I'm just like, well, I mean, everything sort of, runs on the scholastic model and where does rugby fit? Because that's, especially on the youth side, but on the senior side, um, I, I love rugby, but the amount of time it would take to play 11 months out of the year is a bit rough. And we all have other interests and other commitments. And I think a healthy model doesn't have us playing 11 months out of the year. Well, Aaron, you just said it. One size doesn't fit all, right? And that's and that's the whole point. It's um, there's not one singular system that everybody should be a part of because everybody has different ends in mind, and that's really important. And for you, that may just be, you know, getting a breather a couple times a week. That may be the camaraderie. That may be that you believe at some point you're going to play your way into the national team, right? There, there are different motivations there, so it is not a one size fits all. Um, country, but let's 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 agree kind of where we want to get to, and for for each group and. Let's let's make sure that we have um, some principles in place that we all agree to, and some flexibility. I actually think, you know, despite you, you hear some of the negativity, there's so many good things happening in rugby in this country right now, and that's um, and that's really exciting to see. So you, um, you know, you transition out of high performance manager role, and you become you get a. So when the planning phase for the Free Jacks was occurring. Um, before, like while you were high performance manager, like when did, I guess, um, the boss, um, now chairman of the MLR board of governors, Eric Anderson approach you to leave and take this full-time role? So, uh, so yeah, I was high performance director, uh, and then, then kind of that at the end of the Olympics heading into 2017 became general manager. Um, you know, I was doing more uh, shaping with all of USA Rugby. That contract that I agreed to was only through 2018. I was an independent contractor, and that was a choice I had made. And um, you know, 2018 was kind of going to be probably the time that I that I left. Um, and then then CEO Ross was coming in, kind of an interim. Ross, you know, it's time that we start planning my exit. Um, if I'm going to stay, then we probably have to change a few things and um, and just be on the same page about what those should be and how best um, help. And uh, Eric and I had friends for a long time to school together. We played rugby for a bit together. And we've always talked about different aspects. Okay, what, what would professional rugby look like in the United States? What does that look like? Is it, is it rugby? Um, we always, always wanted to do something together. And, um, you know, we decided that year was like, well, I'll be leaving USA Rugby. Let's let's look in together collectively what this, what this new thing is all about and, and see if it's the right fit for certainly our lives. But for where we want to spend, you know, the next hopefully 40 years of our lives focusing on, you know, and that's, and that's building better communities through sport. And I believe rugby is the ideal tool for that. And so that's, uh, we found that MLR's um, narrative was very compelling. 
it's a um, slow growth model, you know, in terms of let's let's make sure we manage costs so that we can we can continue to grow, but we don't need to be the NFL tomorrow. We don't need to spend like we're in the NFL tomorrow. Let's make sure we're really connected to our communities, the current rugby communities, but our future fans that, that uh, we want to create. Uh, let's make sure they have a great experience just being participants as fans uh, was a really important piece of that. So a lot of those pieces were in place. Uh, and so that opportunity presented itself and, and we ran with it. So when you're putting uh, this this model together that's on the business side, you we've seen, you know, MLR teams basically, for the most part, except for um, currently Dallas and Los Angeles, the newest additions, because I've sort of looked at the performance metrics a lot. And I say, you know, the you can't eventually you won't be able to do an exhibition season and build a squad off that. Um, but so far it has worked for the, the last, the first five expansion teams and the exhibition season isn't really about, um, in my mind, the performance aspects, like playing high quality matches is very important, but I look at, um, the commercial aspect of it, especially with the Kara cup. I think the commercial aspect that you guys developed locally with the Kara cup really shows what that model was about. Um, you know, Old Glory did pretty well with that as well down in, down um, in DC, but you know, those are like stressing systems and developing things for game day and preparing your organization to jump into a season, correct? Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's, and, and, you know, as a CEO, my, I have eight basically, over, I oversee basically eight big KPIs, right? And only one of those is rugby. And, he, and even that KPI is probably not what people would, would think it is in terms of rugby, whether we're going to be success this year or not, you know, what that KPI is. But there's, there's seven others that, that I spend most of my time focusing on. And that's what that exhibition season really allowed us to do is, okay, what is our game day going to look like? What can we learn? What don't we have? What do we need a resource? Who is our current market? You know, how do we make sure that they have a great time? How do we grow that market? Uh, who are our, our, our partners corporate-wise that we're going to move forward with? How do we sell tickets? Um, so all of those things are, are, are really, really important to running and growing a sports entertainment company and a sports entertainment brand. And that's what we are, right? We're in the live events business. Um, maybe there's an opportunity for a, a really successful media play there in the future. Uh, and consumer products. That's what we're in as a, as a kind of a company and a brand. That's what sports teams really effectively are. And so that's a that's a big chunk of things we had to do. Certainly the rugby department, we learned a lot. You know, the, the guys on the field learned a lot. Um, we learned what we systems we didn't have and what systems we need to build and where personnel we, we perhaps were um, in great space and where we needed to, to, to change. And so that was really for the exhibition season. The, the big things coming out of that were more off the field. Certainly you're, you're exactly right. So you look at, you know, going into the season, you guys did some fun stuff and more so what I would consider torture because I used to do that stuff for work. Um, what, so we look at um, sports teams and I think they're very analogous um, to, uh, you know, combat, specifically combat arms units, because I, uh, when I, I left the army and one, I had an opportunity, uh, what was it? Silicon Valley sevens back in 20 fall of yeah. 2017. Yeah. I was the liaison yeah. and, and interesting. All of the people that are on the liaison team are like all ex all former military people. And it's like that with everything. And yeah. I was just like, what? It's because everyone knows how to like do logistics yeah. and planning and be, 
be places and do all that stuff and it, it works out but it but it's, it's it's interesting it's like i think there's nothing that is sort of like that not necessarily single gender but when i was a platoon leader there were only men in my reconnaissance platoon okay. but just specifically working as a unit towards a in a missions-based environment and that's sort of well, now that I, I also work with MLR, it, it, sports is a very analogous um, wet thing. It's a mission-based environment specifically for the, I guess, the rugby operation, the team operation side of the house yeah. um, when it comes to on-field success. Yeah. And it was interesting. I, I observed Canada when I was working as on their liaison, and I saw that sort of, sort of same esprit de corps, same mission type, yeah. type stuff. So why would you take your team snowshoeing? <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> so first of all, I appreciate that. Obviously, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know um, on the military side, and certainly uh, you know, I, I hesitate to make those comparisons uh, in, in that world um, to those who do service for our country in a, in a much more stressful, crazy environment. Uh, but for us, what we were trying to accomplish was uh, ensuring that we were putting all ourselves in a vulnerable situation. Right, and then seeing how we could adjust and learn and, and build some language around that vulnerability, and that's what we were trying to do, right? And for the vast majority of the guys on the team, they hadn't been in that situation before, um, you know, ice hiking and a few other things where, you know, you quite don't have the balance you normally have, and, and you're, you're being pushed in ways that, that perhaps you don't get to be pushed on an everyday basis. And so that was really um, the genesis of what we were trying to accomplish there, and I think overall we were able to, to get to that point. So that was. Yeah, I think it, it served its its purpose, and we had a lot of yeah. fun too. I, I, it's very interesting to see how sports teams sort of borrow from um, the service. I, I think it was like I was talking to Tim O'Brien, um, right after the draft, and you signed, yeah. you know, one of his players, undrafted free agent Tom Brizotti, um, right. and they would talk about it's like you know, it's about removing the comfort level of these athletes because they go into this, they're in this, they're in the classroom environment. They're in a relatively safe environment. And I'm just going, you have no much idea how much I hate log PT. Yeah. Like I, like, we would, I mean, we did log PT probably once a month when I was in the army or, and I remember I went to, and this is put this in your bonnet. Um, next time you want to go snowshoeing, um, call up the uh, mountain warfare center uh, run by the Vermont national guard yeah. and uh, for training camp and yeah. take your guys out there for three weeks with a rucksack or not three weeks, but three days, probably that'll be enough. Cause I mean, that was about the same. And you know, Did you hear that runs before we're doing preseason. <laughs> you just go, go to the mountain warfare training center at uh, yeah. in, in Vermont and you know, you'll have a, a good time. It'll be, It'll be tough. Like that stuff in the winter is not fun. I've done like, the snowing, the snowshoeing stuff. I was just like, I used to do this stuff, and I don't understand why. You, and you see people like I'm, you see people actually go snowshoeing for like snowshoeing fun. Is awesome. It's great. I, I, I love it. You get away. It's fantastic. I love cross country skiing even more. Yeah, love it. But um, so I was just you know I just find it interesting. Uh, and it is analogous. I do. I think that the mission-based environment of sports and the service is, is very close, and that's why you see um, it's so, why it's so tight, really. 
Well, but I should the, check out the full contact CEO episode that we just did with Doug Lamont. You know, his new book that he's coming out, it's, it's about coaching, but you know, his his background is pedagogy and teaching, um, but really understands sports and just how, um, you know, train and getting the ability to be able to make quick decisions, right? And the reaction time isn't actually your reaction time, but it's what you see before and understanding and being really efficient at getting the, the pertinent information in front of you. Yep. So, you know, combat is probably a lot of the training you guys do is, okay, there's a lot of information. What's the pertinent information, right? And teaching the brain to be able to, to understand what is and what isn't. It's a, it's a good read. And he does a great job explaining that. On Listening to my radio in contact is not a fun experience. <laughs> it's been a, it's been a while. Oh, uh, thank gosh. But, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll check that one out. Um, so we get into, I mean, this season, you guys go one and four, uh, you, um, you know, Josh Smith, uh, led the program for, uh, through the, the, the exhibition season. And then this year, and you guys do, um, you talked a lot about what you guys wanted to do. You did an evaluation of the roster staff and, you know, Josh Smith is staying on your staff. Um, but I, the, I titled, the episode for for Major League Rugby MLR kickoff New England evolves because you you didn't use that word but that's sort of where you guys went. We, we continue to change and ho- and hopefully it's an evolution. You know I was really proud of the team. They, yeah, the, the record was one and four, but we had five games on the road in our very first season, right? Um, with a staff that was learning how to be professional coaches, right? That's enormously challenging challenging situation to be in with team that had just come together. We were in every game. Uh, we were playing some decent rugby, highest try scoring team in the competition. Um, perhaps there were some things there that we didn't do as well as we should have, and we didn't train the players as well as, as we could have uh, in terms of managing transition and our defense um, that, were, that were the difference makers, right? Even though we were on the road against you know, the top four from last year, four of the five, whatever, that were in the, the top four the previous year. Um, so actually I was really proud of the, of the team, uh, staff and players. Um, you know, Josh is fantastic. Love him. Josh has a, another job that's his, his real job. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a corrections officer and he's, he's approaching retirement and last year for last year to be really successful and for Josh to learn as much as he possibly could, he was going to have to be able to take some time away from that. When it came uh, at the end there, before he had a chance to really jump into the season, that opportunity that he thought was going to be available wasn't. So, you know, massive hat tip to Josh. He was, he was doing full two full-time jobs. You know, he was doing 90 plus hours a week, uh, which is enormously difficult. He needed to be able to do 80 of those hours a week, you know, continuing to evolve as, as a head coach. And he didn't, he didn't really get that opportunity. So Josh wisely is going to continue to, um, you know, chases that full-time job, chases his time to retirement and continue to chip away at uh, being the most successful coach he can be. And we're very lucky that, that he's going to continue to be involved and help run our independence and help uh, mentor coaches and and players who are coming up through the system uh, you know some of the guys who did the independence last year did a fantastic job now you have a guy like josh who you know national champion club coach uh you know on a, on a couple of occasions you know kind of the, the one of the best in the club game getting a chance at, at the professional game and understanding just the vast difference you know and his knowledge uh, what he learned through that experience being able to transfer that knowledge to others now will be really really important i've only seen this happen once only once, and it's, okay. only hap- and it's happened in rugby. Tama Umaga, oh right, 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 yeah. was demote. I mean, was demoted. I mean, Josh's situation being different, 
because yeah. he has another is a full time job. It would probably be a different situation. Yeah, but Tano Umaga um, was the head coach of the Blues and New Zealand Rugby because it's centrally controlled. Um, yeah. Says they they need to do a performance review and they need to change head coach. And I mean, how do you? I mean, you you keep you you have you. We should maybe speak in the role that he's best to do it. You know, I can't speak for Tana, but maybe that's what happened with the Blues. It's well, just I, really good at you know. It's like you see this in sales and everything else. You get people who are really, really good at sales, and they get you know pushed into situations of management or other things um, where that's not their skill set. And so it's not every, you know like being a manager is not nearly as attractive as everybody thinks. <laughs> no, it's it's just uh, my my only my only um, point with there is that. The Free Jacks are incredibly lucky, as the Blues are incredibly lucky, that both totally. these men wanted to stay a part of the process. Yeah. Um, and even the changes. Exactly. And John, John's current skill sets are going to be amazing at what he's doing. And it doesn't mean that um, at another time in the future when his life is different, um, he continues to work at those things, that he's not going to be a brilliant professional head coach either. That, that's not what I'm saying. Um you know. Yeah, I, I was just saying it was like I've only seen this happen once, and I've and it's amazing that it's only happened in rugby. And I just for you as a CEO um, and general manager as the Free Jacks, like how incredibly lucky is it that you get to have as good of a coach as Josh Smith yeah, is absolutely. to to retain his knowledge within your organization to be part of the development process and also bring in another high level coach to to lead your first team like that is that is an incredible position to be in um and then so now we get into ryan martin um who i also on monday night had the chance to to nerd out with um with pete steinberg and dan power and i am um you know when you when you talk to high level rugby coaches that just are professionals much like football coaches yeah um i love coaching I love coaches. I love, and you just listen to how they talk and you know, what the things they're saying. And I'm just like, this is, you know, not to, not to like get in with your good side too much, but this is a great hire. Like yeah, really like this guy, high level thinker. Um, really appreciate. And the, the parallel with him and he talked and I didn't say this to, to Ryan, but the pair like often, especially with New Zealand, now with professionalism, it is harder for the the non-professional player to become a professional coach. And he is one of the only non-professional players to be a professional coach right now in New Zealand. But there was another one, and it worked out pretty good. Joe Schmidt was also a teacher. Yeah, yeah. there's been a lot. Eddie Jones is a teacher. There's been a lot of guys who are Graham Henry. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that all teachers make great coaches, vice versa, but um, that you need to be a teacher to be a great coach. But certainly um, having the craft of teaching and transfer knowledge and being able to create systems around transfer of knowledge efficiently uh, is, is, is a great skill set to have. Um, and that's, you know, I see that with Ryan. And he's also seen from so many different angles. Uh, so he's, he's, he's fantastic. And he's just a great human. So it's really great. Because this goes into, um, I mean, this is sort of the path I, I personally like sitting sort of where I sit hanging out with Dan Power and, and Pete Steinberg all the time. It's like we look at the coaching investment across the league. And yeah. this is the the path we want to, that we sort of just as commentators or media people that we want to see 
the the league sort of going. And I was like, man, this is the kind of investment that needs to happen because you get all the experience. And then you talked about you know the pedagogical um, and methods that he has, and the fact that he was a teacher. So he's going to be able to bring in all this knowledge. And then also build systems that allow you to, you know, develop your academy or your sub academy when you bring in college athletes that can, you know, be in that system. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's making things more efficient, right? And that's really what really good teachers are able to do. They, they, they make the learning process more efficient, so you get more opportunities to learn, um, and there's there's more accountability in that process, both teacher to student, student to teacher, player to coach, coach to player, player to player. Right, so it's accountability and efficiency that really good um, coaches are able to do at the end of the day, and really good teachers are. And Ryan, you know, has a proven ability to do that. So we're really excited to have him in into the into the to the Freejax universe. Yeah, there was a discussion on Twitter that you were also in. Um, it was about, I guess, the I guess national origin of coaches in MLR, and this is sort of where I'm like, I just want to see investment in professional coaching. That's 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 my that's my. They have them in a competition to develop those coaches, right? And And you talk to Josh, and you see the differential, and what he will tell you, I I would assume, is um, where where he thought he was as a as a club coach, a very very good American club coach, versus what it takes to run as a a professional team. There's there's a big difference there. You see that with some of our our college coaches. There's some really good college coaches out there who could certainly coach. Uh, at the, the professional game, they're in really good situations with um, the colleges and making that ground risky. There you know, there's some really there good coaches go. out there that that are that are out there that are American, whatever that means. And, and you know, I think guys who are making that argument need to really define what that means. Um, but I assume it's guys who've been developed; they've developed their coaching in the United States. I, I assume that's what the argument is. Um, and, and there, there are some really, really good coaches out there in, in, the, in the college game. There's also some good coaches in the club game, but there's going to be there's a whole time period there where they have to learn kind of what that means to be a professional coach, where you're on the trot 80 hours a week and um, you're emotionally dealing with kind of the center of the emotional universe for those teams, and it's tough. It can be really tough. Because I, I had the same question um, about what what that actually meant, like um, because Nate Osborne is the only coach from season one left. He is the last of the original seven head coaches in MLR. And um, he, as as a senior player, um, spent most of his life playing rugby in the United States. And his entire coaching career has been rugby in the United States. He's married to an American, has four beautiful American daughters. Part of a World Cup coaching team. So, Yeah. yeah. You know, for me, that's an American, right? So uh, it was an interesting argument, but you talked about situations of because there were some names thrown out, and I'm just like, I could name five college coaches that probably would be on a list for an MLR team if they were looking domestically, but their situation where they are, um, because security matters. It does, right? It does. Security yeah, matters. That's like security of that. That experience, but also fundamentally, you know, coaching at that age is 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 so rewarding because you you go through these, you know, it's a very quick reward, and it's a different type of coaching. It's you know, you're you're developing as we talked about earlier, the whole person, and you have the ability at that age, eighteen to twenty two, and 
professional game is a bit different, right? It's it's at the, at the end of the day, it's a sports entertainment business, and so the role of the coach is is is, is a bit different in in the in, in perhaps the um, purity of developing the student. I think we'll see, you know, eventually my, many of these college coaches make the jump, but it's we're a, a four year league, right. um, so there is some trepidation about making the jump because there is just an inherent an inherent lack of stability because it's a, we're in a startup business. Um, and there, there, so. the reality is there are very few professional time professional coaches in the United States. Uh, you know, we have we have some in the in in Mira, we have some at some college uh, programs, and we have some in the club game, and we have some at the pro game. It's not a lot of people, uh, men or women, uh, who are able to make a living coaching. There's not a lot of people. So it's um, we, we need to grow that yeah. base. Because um, it's, I mean, for if you're a professional coach in the college game, right, uh, the making the jump to MLR, if it doesn't go well, or it goes well for a little bit and then doesn't go well because there's so few professional coaching roles in college now to like where you would go back to your, I guess not security blanket, but where you were secure, where you had security will no longer be there if you exit um, exactly. an MLR coaching opportunity. So it's, I, mean, it's a, I think it's a complicated issue in general. Yeah. And, it, and you're, and I think you and you've done some work sort of, um, not sort of, but you guys have done some work on coaching development um, that will extend resources uh, into the local colleges to just, you know, help them spin up and stay at the, the edge of the game so that they can, in a sense, you know, be left of bang. Um, we, we use that term all the time. I'm sure they use that. Be left of bang. Bang is... Whenever the big problem happens, it just okay. explodes. Yeah, just be away from it to the side. The yeah, so be so be ahead of whatever the problem is going to be. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So like, and um, for you guys now, let's get into systems that aren't really first team based. Yeah. Um. Let's look at grassroots development. Uh, you guys have been running in in this period of time, which is very constrained because of restrictions and because we are in a pandemic you've been running your junior jacks program yeah well, we've been doing coach yeah we've done a lot of virtual stuff and then you know the last month month really month and a half we've been able to get on the field doing some light stuff we're still in phase three here in new england so it's um it's still distance for the most part and non-contact masks that kind of stuff but we've been able to start that transition which is good and who knows we may have to go back down to phase two depending on what happens here in the next couple of months uh, but it's been really nice to start doing that for sure. Yeah. It's, it's just good to see like a investment and that reach back. Cause I tell, I tell people all the time is like for every kid you get, usually get two parents. So if you get for every child that you get in your junior Jacks program, yeah. you're likely going to get three fans. Like that's, and it's, and it's not, it's not amazing math. It's, it's water math since I'm drinking water right now, but uh, it's, it's, you know, coffee math or beer math, but yeah. it's, it's sort of like, that's sort of what's going on. Um, yeah. Like every, every kid you invest in to make a fan, um, those kids, especially if they stick with the program, will bring their parents with them. So. Right. What the, it's math. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's math. Yeah. And then, so now we look at, uh, I guess, sort of 
Um, not necessarily age grade level. I'm guessing because we've seen it, we've sort of seen it with Nola and Houston that you will do a, a high performance sort of sponsored, uh, you know, high school team or teams. Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's going to be teams um, that will play in RCTs over the yeah. summer when we are, whenever we are back to normal. I mean that, that that's the goal of, of the vast majority of the of the members of MLR is to you know suppress roots number one make sure there's increased participation opportunities in the game whether that's touch whether that's you know sevens tens kind of under fourteen down making sure kind of from fourteen to eighteen there's opportunity to evolve as a player um, and that you know, players who are who are further along at that age get opportunities to travel and compete, right? But I think fundamentally still, we were talking about High Performance USA Rugby earlier, growing the game at the local level is the important thing here, right? As opposed to spending money on travel, let's spend money on access to facilities, access to quality coaching, uh, giving opportunities for those coaches to improve, giving opportunities for athletes to get identified at the local level, right? So that's, that's really the, the goal here. Um, and then, um, yeah, so the junior jacks up through 18, you know, uh, boys and girls, and then the, the independence program, which kind of an amalgamation of, of collegiate and club. And, uh, and then from there, you know, I think that's the thing. Hopefully we're spitting out Olympians in a few years and world cup athletes, <laughs> and, right. And, you know, some, some free jacks, if not some MLR players and players who can also play, um, the professional women as that, as that evolves. So, and this is probably... I've taken up a lot of your time. I think I only asked for an hour. And I still have to finish my budget. So, so, um, and uh, I just got, so I can, so you don't get in trouble with the boss. Um, I guess my last question is we talked about sevens a little bit earlier in the week. And so we've seen two uh, events get cut. Um, We've seen players before that happened. um, I guess it's July. So I guess back in um, April, uh, the, uh, rugby ATL released Harley Wheeler uh, to sevens full time to train for the Olympics. Do you think, depending on how things go, if those, I, I don't know if these conversations have been had, but we're seeing specifically, I mean, England, uh, they told their team to go get jobs. France, different, different. I like what France is doing. They're loaning out all their sevens players to top 14s teams. So they're trying their best to get their team game time in 15s. Right. Um, So do you think, I mean, MLR has the ability to just address that if the series gets canceled. Have there been um, any conversations for getting, I guess, the entirety of the residency squad into MLR teams um, to support sevens. Macro level, right? There is uh, a lot of benefit to improvement in daily training environments. I do believe if I were in the shoes of of, 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 of Mike or right now, and I got a year to go, I'm probably not going to want my players to be um, focused on the 15-a-side game with a year left to the Olympics because there's a lot of um, periodization and um, development that needs to happen, fitness development that needs to happen very specifically to be successful you know, next end of next July. Uh, so I, I probably wouldn't be making that choice, but I, I, those opportunities would always be open for, you know, for the, that team and those athletes to, to, to get more competitive minutes. If that's that they deemed was really important for their development. Um, you know, I think you probably see that more at the start of a quad than towards the end of a quad. 
Uh, it was just, I mean, I, I didn't think necessarily our, I guess, season was aligned that way. I think just based on watching France place players with top 14 teams, yeah. that if, if you just needed high quality match time with the series being gone, that could be an option for some of these players, especially for the match time, or is that about being in, in proper daily training environments? And it could be that. Um, and obviously, the MLR really is. There's nothing happening with the MLR right now in terms of daily training environments. So that could have been the reasoning, and I'm not sure. Um, you know, the, the, the French, the, the reasoning behind that. It could have just been a cost savings metric. Shut down the center, get everybody out, so they're in, a, in an environment where they can train with other professionals because they are doing that. MLR is not in that. We're not training right now and not really until December. So, you know, that could, that could have been the reasoning as well. Gotcha. Well, yeah. um, Alex really enjoyed the the chat. Um, we got a chance to like put your, put your story out there. Um, you know, he's at full contact CEO. He's got some, I mean, I, I was talking to somebody, they're like our podcast for younger or older. I was like podcasts are for think mobile. Yeah, like podcasts are like everyone I everyone out there does podcasts. So everything you always got to think is thing mobile first, and that's where podcasts are. And you know, you've got some great episodes. I think I need to subscribe because yeah. uh, I think uh, I, I just listen to everything these days. Yeah. Like I don't watch a lot of news, and all I listen to like NPR's um, you know show from the day before, and you know BBC, like all of the news and all the the sports stuff I get on podcasts and it's just long form discussion. Yeah. I mean, it, it, like if you're in the, the, the business of sport, you know, listen to Mike Rabel one, you know, Courtney Banghart's a legend in terms of managing a team and team culture. Um, you know, the Dean Edner one is fantastic. That was just released this thing. I think uh, Tiger Shaw, fantastic. If you're looking like NGB, how an NGB, you know, CEO of US skiing, that's uh, a good comp. If you're talking about kind of USA rugby, um, and then the, the Doug Lamov one that I think is, is coming out here uh, any day now is is brilliant. And then especially if you're into the kind of the coaching and the structures and the pay-to-play models and all those thoughts, that's a really good one. And there's some really good ones um, that are coming. So, yeah, have a look. And, and they're coming from all different angles, which is great. So um, that's it for Earful of Dirt lineouts. Um, this is going to be a long one. So it, when you this is the longest um, thing I've ever done in my life, <laughs> if you when you end up listening to this on yeah. when you end up listening to this on podcast for I mean we've had some viewers stay the whole time. So. If anybody's been on it the whole time, I'll buy them a coffee. I'll buy them a beer at some point when we can get back together because that's awesome. Yeah. So, um, but thank you for uh, the discussion and uh, you know. Um, We'll get out of here and uh, let you yeah. submit that budget. <laughs> Thank you, Aaron. I'm out. <laughs> Cheers. Love. This has been Lineouts by Earful of Dirt. Connect with Earful of Dirt online. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Earful of Dirt. You can email us at earfulofdirt at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 720-600-2679. For Aaron, Dan, and Victor, I'm Corey. Thanks for listening.